You know you're jonesing for some tofu. Well, we got enough that if you stacked it end over end, it would go up to the moon, baby. On Vegan Radio! Hello and welcome to another edition of Vegan Radio. I'm Megan Shackleford. And I'm Derek Goodwin. And today's show is going to be really great. We have some leftovers from last show's Farm Sanctuary Thanksgiving special. We have Harold Brown, who is also known as Farmer Brown. He was in the documentary Peaceable Kingdom. He's also an ex-farmer turned vegan. You know you're Jones in for tofu. And we have pedal people, Ruthie and Alex, two local heroes from Northampton. Um, they have a recycling and trash business that they operate completely on their bicycles. And since Alex is vegetarian and Ruthie is a freegan, that means that they... Stay pedal- tuned to find out what freegan means. <laughs> that means that when they take trash to the dump, it's all done on vegetable power. And in the news, we have Sir Paul McCartney and his lovely wife, Heather, battling the fur industry almost single-handedly. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM. And podcast at www.veganradio.com. And we are Vegan Vegan Radio. Radio. Thanks for joining us. Vegan Radio. But first, the naked news. This is Vegan Radio. Thank you for joining us for the Naked News. I'm Derek Goodwin. And I'm Megan Shackleford. And we're looking good with no clothes on. You well, should see us. wish we were looking better. I think we need, both need to get to the gym. <laughs> oh, come on. Let's just skip to the news, shall we? <laughs> We've uh, got Extortion and the Eric Marcus Podcast. Fellow vegan podcaster Eric Marcus has become the latest target of an age-old crime. Eric Marcus, author of Meat Market. Yep. And Vegan, the New Ethics of Eating. His RSS feed has been redirected by a cyber squatter who's demanding payment as a condition for releasing the hijacked feed. Eric runs the vegan.com website and produced the Eric's Diner podcast, which you can actually find links to in our show notes on veganradio.com. What was that? veganradio.com? I think it's veganradio.com. Check it out. Awesome. The issue came to light after Marcus noticed that downloads of his podcast had suddenly slipped after steadily building up an audience of 1,500. Marcus discovered that Yahoo has an RSS listing for the Eric's Diner podcast on its beta site, podcast.yahoo.com, which is pointed to podkeyword.com instead of vegan.com. Dot what? What's with all those dot coms? I don't know. I'm confused. Yahoo has thus far failed to correct the listing, and the problem was compounded after Apple's iTunes service also linked the pod keyword URL with Eric's Diner podcast. I think there's a secret plot against Eric Marcus. <laughs> I think there is, too. <laughs> He's just a victim. He's a victim in this war against the vegans. He was on the front lines, and they're, they're after him. I know. Well, frustrated in dealing with Yahoo and Apple, Marcus contacted pod keyword to request a workaround at its end. PodKeyword responded it would only make listing changes if Marcus made an unspecified payment (laughs) or agreed permanently to its terms. Extortion! Extortion. I wonder what the terms were. I don't know. They'd make him eat meat for a month or something. Some monetary. Shout out to Eric. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we also got um, U.S. fisheries discard 22% of catch. According to a study reported by the Washington Post, American fishing operations discard more than a fifth of what they catch each year. The study, which appears in the December issue of the journal Fish and Fisheries, represents the first comprehensive accounting of, of the amount of bycatch in the United States. U.S. fisheries, on average, throw away 22% or 1.1 million tons of the fish that they catch. A variety of unwanted marine species become trapped in fishing gear by vessels seeking a different catch and are then thrown away, including non-commercial species such as jellyfish and small crustaceans. The researchers did not include protected species such as turtles as well as mammals and birds in their study. Bob Mahood, executive director of the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council, said his region had helped reduce bycatch over the past decade by demanding that fishing operations adopt different gear. In the snapper and grouper fishery, the council had barred entanglement nets, trawling and mesh traps that lure fish with bait. Most of the region's bycatch consists of what Mahood calls, quote, commercially non-essential species, though he added, if you look from an ecosystem point of view, they obviously have some ecosystem value. Susan Buchanan, a spokeswoman for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said the agency, quote, remains committed to further reducing bycatch through innovative technologies and management approaches. Sounds like a load of uh, manure to me. <laughs> Don't you think, baby? <laughs> We've talked about this. Talked about what? Manure? No, baby. Baby? And now for my favorite news story. Um, PETA halts J. Crew campaign as retail giant promises that fur Woo-hoo. is out. I happen to pick up a J. Crew catalog, not because I get it, but because um, a friend of That's mine. That's not what I've heard. A friend of mine receives it. And what are those pants you're not wearing it, right now? <laughs> <laughs> What's that pile of clothes on the floor? Where did they come from? <laughs> not from J. Crew, my oh, friend. Oh, man. But um, I was pretty horrified to pick up that catalog, leafing through it. Everything was fur. It just seemed really? like there was so much fur trim in there. I was like, I have to call these people because it's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Yeah, fur trim belongs in the bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) On to the story. For 11 weeks, PETA supporters have waged a vigorous campaign against retailer J. Crew, capturing headlines and attention throughout the nation and demanding that the chain stop selling fur clothing, fur trim, and fur accessories. This pressure, along with a tremendous outcry from J. Crew's own customers, who were shocked to see that the retailer was supporting the violent and bloody fur industry, paid off on November 30, 2005, when J. Crew confirmed that it will no longer sell fur. Uncorking a bottle of champagne and accompanied by a giant fox, Heather Mills McCartney. She was accompanied by a fox, or she's a giant fox? <laughs> I'll, I'll let the listeners decide. Heather Mills McCartney helped launch PETA's boycott. And they will celebrate J. Crew's announcement that it has ended all fur sales and is pulling all fur from its stores during the busiest selling season of the year. All right, J. Crew, way to go. Good job. Good job, J. Crew. Good job, Peter. Good job, Heather. Good job. All right, now Megan can buy her clothes without a guilty conscience. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. Okay, thank you. All right, that's enough. Okay, that's enough. Okay. Joining the top ranks of top fashion retailers, H&M, Forever 21, Gap Incorporated, 
Banana Republic, and others that do not sell fur, J. Crew is sending a powerful message to the clothing industry that putting rabbits, coyotes, foxes, and other animals through horrible lives and torturous deaths will not be tolerated. And is there any other McCartney news? Yep. McCartney attacks China over fur. McCartney? McCartney. Is he like Godzilla attacks China? Adrian Addison from the BBC Six O'Clock News reports that Sir Paul McCartney has vowed never to perform in China after seeing horrific undercover footage of dogs and cats being killed for their fur. What do you think about this whole Sir McCartney thing? It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's a little weird. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want people to call me Sir Goodwin. Uh, yeah, I can't see that happening. Maybe Goodwin, sir. Can't really see it happening, but... Yes, ma'am. The film shows animals being thrown from a bus and into boiling water. Not very pleasant. A Chinese official said boycotts were not justified and blamed U.S. and European consumers for buying the fur, which is partly true. If we didn't buy it, they wouldn't sell it to us. That's true. In the film, dogs and cats packed by the dozen into wire cages little bigger than lobster pots are pictured being thrown from the top deck of a converted bus onto concrete pavements. The screaming animals, many with their paws now smashed from the fall, are then lifted out with long metal tongs and thrown over a seven-foot fence. They are then killed and skinned for their fur. Investigators from PETA report that many of them are still alive as their skins are peeled away. Sir Paul and his wife Heather looked aghast and close to tears as they watched the footage for a special report for the BBC's 6 o'clock news to be screened on Monday. And uh, by the way, we have that footage available at veganradio.com. If anyone is listening, wears fur, and you want to see how animals are treated to get fur. How cats and dogs are treated. Go to veganradio.com. It's a very disturbing video. So here's a quote from Sir Paul. I wouldn't even dream of going over there to play in the same way I wouldn't go to a country that supported apartheid. This is just disgusting. It's just against every rule of humanity. I couldn't go there. And another piece of the harrowing footage shot this summer by an undercover investigator connected to the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals campaign group. Cats are seen squirming inside a sack, which is then thrown into a vat of steaming water. They're boiled to death and skinned by a fleecing machine similar to a launderette tumble dryer. Since the only verifiable way to tell if a fur coat is made from a dog or cat fur is by expensive genetic testing, cat and dog fur is inevitably sold in the United States, Canada, and Europe. While you might not recognize a golden retriever in your grandmother's fur coat, you are likely to find man's best friends in the fur trim that is in fashion on many garments these days. The cute little fur toys you buy for your cat may also be made from the skin of another cat. A ban of all Chinese fur has been suggested in the UK, but would most likely only happen if all the European Union agreed to it. Campaigners estimate that over 2 million dogs and cats are killed for their fur in China every year. China also farms animals such as mink for their fur and makes over half of the world's fur products. Band on the run. Diddly, diddly, diddly. Band on the run. Any Paul McCartney stories left? <laughs> <laughs> we actually have one more McCartney story. Oh, whoa, whoa. McCartney tells Canada Prime Minister to My end seal slaughter. Paul McCartney is giving Canadian Prime Minister Paul Martin a hard time over harp seal hunts as the Prime Minister campaigns for re-election. Criticism over Canada's seal hunt came soon after opposition parties united this week to oust Martin's scandal-tainted minority liberal government in a no-confidence vote. With the latest opinion polls indicating the liberals are tied with the opposition conservatives, 
Pundits worried these dissenting voices could damage Martin's popularity, especially with younger voters, and hurt his chances for re-election. Man, they got the same problems we do. I know. McCartney sent a letter to Martin on Wednesday threatening to stir up a media storm over Canada's seal hunt if it is allowed to continue. Paul told Martin, quote, We wanted to put you on notice that if Canada moves forward with another hunt next year, we will do all we can to focus attention on this unjustified, outdated, and truly horrific practice, including, potentially, visiting the seals and the ice. McCartney and his wife, Heather Mills McCartney, also activists of the year lately, told the Humane Society of the United States they would consider visiting the ice flows where the commercial seal hunt takes place in a bid to draw attention to the issue. Well, you know, Paul is the walrus, so... So He's probably familiar with that kind of territory. With the ice, yes. He could go out there and uh, Feels connected. protect the seals. In the past two years... I am the walrus. In the past two years, animal rights... I am the cuckoo. <laughs> cuckoo, cuckoo. In the past two years, animal rights defenders have campaigned strongly to stop the seal hunt, outraged by Canada's increased hunt quotas. Canadian authorities raised the quota to 319,517 seals in 2005 because of the estimated population number. McCartney's warning came only days after Bono chastised Martin for failing to meet his aid commitments. Isn't it Bono? It's Bono, my friend. <laughs> no matter how many times you say Bono, it's always going to be Bono. I don't know. I the think... Irish rock star said he was personally disappointed and crushed that Martin did not spend more money to help the world's poorest countries. Well, this Martin character, he sounds like a lousy liberal. Yeah, he's bad news. <laughs> Get rid of him. Down with Martin, up with Paul. <laughs> Paul McCartney. The is Paul. No more stories. He is. That's uh, his third and final activist story for the week. He's for the week. He we'll have Paul McCartney back in lot. the next uh, Vegan Radio. We'll be interviewing him <laughs> on a yellow <laughs> submarine. Bloop, 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 bloop. All right, listeners, and on to the next story. <laughs> Farm animal cams. Watch your meat grow? In her weekly LA Times column, Megan Dom describes how a distributor for family farms called Heritage Foods USA is bringing, quote, traceable foods to the mainstream. For example, before Thanksgiving, the company had a website with a 24-hour turkey cam that allowed potential customers to keep tabs on a turkey before extending it, quote, an invitation to dinner. A heritage turkey costs about 10 times more than a Purdue or Butterball. But according to a company spokesman, people are starting to want to know more about the food that they put into their bodies. The Heritage Foods website also shows adorable pigs and lambs that people can pick out and watch grow and then eat later. All this is combined with reassuring, feel-good profiles of the farmers. For example, there's an Arkansas livestock producer who teaches philosophy to children in his spare time and an Ernest Kansan who yeah, reminisces... That's a great guy to be teaching our children. <laughs> I know. And an Ernest Kansan who reminisces thoughtfully about hanging out with Turkey since his boyhood 4-H. Never trust an Ernest Kansan. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Derek ought to know. Both his parents are from Kansas. No, just my mom. Oh, just one. My dad's from Kentucky. <laughs> Miss Dom, who's also a published author and commentator for NPR, is obviously a meat eater bothered by this new marketing venture. She expresses her squeamishness and says that, quote, I took a look at the Heritage Foods website and decided I wanted to know more about becoming a vegetarian. 
and, though I can remain reasonably composed in the face of human suffering, I cannot so much as walk past a lost cat sign without getting choked up. However, she goes on to say, if it weren't for the profiles of the, of the farmers, I might have basted a hunk of tofu Thursday and left it at that. Based a hunk of this, freak. <laughs> she ends What's with... with these NPR people? There's always some, like, NPR freak coming on and talking about how they like eating meat. I'm sick of NPR. Is that... I don't think... But she wasn't necessarily but, but, saying that she wanted to eat meat. I think everyone should listen to vegan radio and not NPR. I... <laughs> But I think she was kind of saying that she was. She said. Thinking of becoming. I, I wanted vegetarian. to become a vegetarian, but then I saw these wonderful farmers who teach philosophy and. Uh, well, she said that that she said that that made her not animals. not exactly have a vegetarian Thanksgiving dinner, but that she was headed in that direction. I don't think she's headed there. I think she's about to suppress it all and move on to the next story. Um, she ends with animal lovers are not all deranged blowhards. <laughs> <laughs> animal lovers are not just, deranged blowhards. Just Derek Goodwin. <laughs> Derek Goodwin's the only deranged blowhard I know. <laughs> <laughs> that will not be in the show. Are you sure? Babe. Do you think I was referring to you? Der- <laughs> <laughs> blowhard's not one of the seven dirty words, you know. As for the Heritage Turkey <laughs> webcam, sensitive types probably shouldn't log on for a while. There's a disturbing absence of turkeys on the farm this weekend. Yep. Turkey Holocaust, we just had it. <laughs> this is some uplifting news today. Vegan Radio, because the animals are listening to And you're listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM. This is Vegan Radio, also available as a podcast on veganradio.com. And now for the local news. Local news. We actually have some sad local news. Um, there was a tragic hunting accident. Hunting season's here, and we can all brace ourselves for a new wave of hunting accidents. The fact that thousands of defenseless animals are being slaughtered for what is questionably called a sport never makes the news. But if a Yahoo with a gun accidentally shoots another person... Then it grabs the headlines. Oh, yeah. To kick off the season, we have a truly tragic story to report. There's been a nationwide decline in hunting licenses issued over the last few years, and so the hunting industry has been trying to reach new, quote, target audiences. Who could they possibly recruit into this sadistic pseudosport? Well, Derek, women and children, of course. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Perhaps it's a cultural tradition to bring children into the woods so they can watch their fathers kill helpless animals with modern weaponry. Pretty soon they'll be able to watch their mothers do it, too. Yep. At Vegan Radio, we think it's a form of child abuse to expose children to extreme violence and to glorify it in the process. What do you guys think? Wouldn't an unarmed walk in the woods be a better way to bond with your children, perhaps, instead of destroying nature? Maybe go bowling or something. (laughs) Wouldn't it be better to just observe nature? Maybe skip a few stones or run up a mountain path if the need to release testosterone arises. I don't know if skipping a few stones is going to, you know. Oh, you've never skipped stones like I have. (laughs) Hmm. You can really wing those things. In Ware, Massachusetts this weekend, one such outing turned... Where? 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 Where, Ware, Massachusetts. Where, Massachusetts? (laughs) (laughs) This weekend, one such outing turned tragic for the child who was brought into the woods to watch his father kill. A 10-year-old boy became the latest victim of an apparent hunting accident. The Springfield Republican reports 
that his father claimed the death resulted from bad footing as they descended a hill, the man carrying a rifle and the boy a BB gun he liked to tote along. The father claimed that his son would normally walk behind him, but as they went down a slope, the father slipped and his son passed by in front of him. The father slipped a second time, grabbed a small tree that became uprooted, and as he slid further down the slope, his gun went off. The father claimed he did not have his finger on the trigger and that the safety was on. The father then ran to his son who had collapsed. Although the boy was brought out of the woods quickly and airlifted to Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, he was pronounced dead on arrival. This is obviously a terrible story, and we're very sorry for the family of the boy. His father had been taking him hunting since the age of four years old. We send our insane. We send our condolences and hope that, if anything, it will serve to sway other hunters from bringing their children into the woods. Please let this tradition end. Let the animals go about their lives without being shot at with weapons they have no defenses against. And please let the children learn to respect nature and the animals who they share it with. With an abundance of healthy and beautiful plant food all around us, is there really any need to kill for food or for a twisted concept of sport? So we have some local event coming up. Yep, we have a vegan potluck happening this Sunday, December 11th at 5.30 p.m. It's going to be at the Evolution Cafe in Florence at 22 Chestnut Street. And um, this potluck is bringing together vegans and vegetarians so that they can get to know each other. From and it's open to everybody? It's open to everybody. You don't have to be vegan or vegetarian. Even, Even you. Wow. Even you, my vegan friend. Um, so, you, the, so the public can come out and meet us. Yes. They you can, can meet, touch celebrity. meet the co-hosts of <laughs> Vegan Radio. Don't get too excited. <laughs> we won't be try, advertising. Though. Try to contain yourself. Anybody who's interested in vegetarianism and animal rights can get together and just meet each other like local people from the community. Is there going to be vegan speed dating? They're gonna <laughs> Only if you initiate it, Derek. Really? And I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> Derek listeners is available actually. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh perhaps I'm, very, I'm married to my work. Perhaps if you come to uh this vegan event, you might be able to get a date with our very own co host from Vegan Radio. Or the other co host. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other things I wanted to say about this event, besides uh vegans and vegetarians and people interested in vegetarianism getting to know each other, um will actually Or getting to know us. Are getting to know us. We will also uh, be talking about future meetings and activism and um, bringing different speakers to the Valley. So the event again is Sunday the 11th, uh, this coming Sunday, 5.30, and people should bring a vegan dish to pass. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be the vegan of event of the year. So that's the uh, Evolution Cafe, December 11th, Sunday, this Sunday, 5.30. Come on out, check out this space. It's a really beautiful space and it's going to be uh, closed to the public so it'll just be us and our potluck and and lots of cool people are already signed up for this maybe we'll have some surprise guests <laughs> some secret vegans and you are listening to vegan radio on wxojlp northampton 103.3 fm perhaps you're listening to it on our podcast at www.veganradio.com I'm Derek Goodwin. And I'm Megan Shackelford. And you're listening to Vegan, Vegan Radio! Radio!
Okay, and the next segment of our show is going to be an interview I conducted with Harold Brown, Farmer Brown from Peaceable Kingdom. He's an ex-farmer turned vegan educator. And now he works at Farm Sanctuary. Very super sweet, compassionate guy. Vegan Radio. Turn it up. This is Derek Goodwin. We're here at Farm Sanctuary Turkey Celebration with Farmer Brown, Harold Brown, who works at the farm now. He used to be a farmer. Uh, Harold, do you want to tell us what you do at Farm Sanctuary? Well, I do I do a number of things. I uh, do everything is from uh, transporting animals for adoption, uh, picking up animals from rescue. Uh, I'm also on a national speaking tour, going out speaking on behalf of farm animals and uh, family farmers. Um, and I work at the shelter. I help with the animals. I build fence. I do whatever they need to be have done around here. So I wear a lot of different hats. And you used to be a farmer? Did you used to raise animals? Yeah, I grew up on a beef farm in south-central Michigan. Uh, the farms around us were owned by my great-uncles. So uh, I also grew up around sheep and um, dairy cows. And I worked in the dairy industry for three years, too. So I've spent about two-thirds of my life in agriculture. You have a website called AskFarmerBrown.org, and you help other farmers make a transition from being animal farmers to plant farmers. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I try to help out with that. I don't get a lot of requests for that, as you can imagine, but I do get a lot of requests, uh, a few a week, of people who want to start farming. So there's a lot of new farmers or um, people who grew up on farms and left and then want to go back to farming after they, they've kind of got a career or profession and now they have kids and they want their kids to grow up on a farm like they did. So they're asking, you know, what is the most profitable way to make a goal of it as a small-scale farmer. That's where I guide them into plant-based agriculture, into organic or veganic agriculture. I try to give them as many options as I can in a cruelty-free uh, type of agriculture. So when they initially come looking uh, for your advice, do they know that you're uh, promoting veganism, or is it more of just a they Google some start-up-a-farm thing and end up at your website? Well, if they get to my website, it doesn't take too long but just reading, you know, a couple pages of my website, and they figure out I'm not into animal agriculture, so, you know, that I'm, I'm promoting plant-based agriculture and sustainable agriculture, more, most importantly. But I do get quite a few questions of people who say, well, I'd like to do a sustainable dairy operation or a pasture-based beef operation. And I just basically lay out the economic realities of what animal agriculture, no matter how you practice it, and how much you may think it's a value-added product and think you're going to make a lot of money at it, how it just isn't in the long term sustainable and isn't as profitable as people would like to think. It seems that a lot of people that want to get involved with this are kind of have a romanticized vision in their head of animal agriculture. Uh, we have basically been sold as, as a society this picture of uh, you know the little red barn in the in the uh, verdant green pasture and the happy little cow out there, and um, while that's a picture these people have in their heads, it's the reality of what it takes to be a farmer. It's a lot of hard work. Animals tend to be more of a drain on your resources. You can you know both as far as your ecosystem goes, but also financially compared to just doing plant-based agriculture. Yeah, it seems like. Um as far as animal agriculture, the big uh, corporations have taken it all over, and the, to my knowledge, it seems like the the place where the 
small farmer is making their best uh, efforts now is in organic farming, and that's a booming industry, and I think the corporations are trying to take that over now too. Is, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's usually one of the easiest ways to convince people not to get into animal agriculture because regardless of how you're going to sell an animal, um, the big boys out there, the large producers, they're the ones who ultimately dictate you know, the, the market price on an animal. Even if you're going with organic or free range, we're seeing factory farming getting involved with that. And that is making it less and less profitable for these people to get into, like pasture-fed uh, beef or free-range chickens or, how, or any of those other terms that they apply to these things. Um, now that we're seeing factory farming doing these same things and marketing these animal products, it's uh, turned into a lot of labeling that actually means nothing. I think people are getting uh, kind of hip to that and realizing it's not a place they want to go because in the long run, these these people in animal agriculture are going to get a larger and larger share of that um, of the market. So even though they may be doing organic animals of some sort or another, these big operations are just going to are moving in and taking over in the same way as they did in conventional. They're going to squeeze out the small guy. Take something like uh, Aurora Dairy in the Central Valley of California. They're a factory farm. It's a freestall dairy system, but they sell their products as um, as organic. They're being taken to task by, for that by a group in Wisconsin called Cornucopia Institute. They're saying that you have a factory farm, these cows never go outdoors, they never are in pasture, but yet, you know, you're able to sell your milk as organic. Unfortunately, that's possible because of the way the USDA organic standards are set up. There's a key word in the standards, and that word is access. As long as you can give them access to sunlight, access to fresh air, access to pasture, and that the feed that they get is at least 80% organic, then in, and they're not given bovine growth hormones or antibiotics, then it's organic milk. It's these freestall barns, the size of them, you can roll them up. And now the air can blow through the barn, even though they're standing on concrete their whole life. Air blows through the barn. Sometime during the day, the sun may shine through one side of that barn. So they get a few minutes of sunshine on them. And that key word, access, if you can bring a bale of hay into a cow, you've just given them access to pasture. Because that bale of hay was, is pasture, and you gave them access to it. People would like to think that cows are out walking around in open pasture, but they're not. It's pretty disturbing. Do you think that the small organic vegetable farms have any protection from being t overtaken by the larger corporations? Well, I think so. We're seeing right now the USDA organic standards are being undermined, and they're being compromised because these large corporations are getting involved in organic plant production. So they're holding more sway since the USDA is influenced by and large by agribusiness. These same agribusinesses are now holding too much sway, I think, in uh, the organic field. The hope for organics isn't in the USDA, it's in third-party certified. Nearly every state in the United States has a, a statewide um, organic certification organization. Like I said, here in New York, it's NOFA, or Northeast Organic Farmers Association. So, and every state does have that. And these are what they call third-party, and these there's, you know, a stricter auditing system, and um, it's self-governing, whereas with USDA organic standards, the guidelines are strictly what the USDA writes up. As far as oversight and regulation and enforcement, 
that is taken care of by the USDA, and which they claim farms are visited once a year and uh, to make sure that they're towing the line as far as organic standards. But I kind of wonder how well that's followed, only because the USDA is like every other federal bureaucracy. They're always cry, crying foul that they don't have, they're getting their budgets cut, and they don't have enough inspectors to go out and check all the farms in the United States. They can't even keep track of something like the uh, feed ban here on in the United States for cattle. They can't manage that. They can't manage these other programs that they're supposed to be taking care of. How can we trust them to manage the organic standards? I wanted to ask you, um, you gave a little speech today at the turkey celebration. You were talking about spreading compassion. Could you tell our listeners about your philosophy? Well, I think if we're going to be effective advocates for animals, I think we need to kind of take a lesson from the animals themselves. I mean, they don't judge us. But yet that's a lesson that we don't take to heart because we tend to be really good at judging each other as far as deciding, you know, if somebody is going to agree with our point of view and if they do, fine. If they don't, then we make judgments about what kind of person they are. And I don't think that's very useful for the animals, and it's definitely not useful to us. Uh, I think that our best advocacy for animals and for our cause is to extend our compassion as much as we can to all people. Like I said in my talk, that we need to be farmers of compassion. So everybody has to view themselves as farmers where we see the people, all the people we meet is like fertile ground that needs to be cultivated and plant the seeds of kindness and compassion and love and cultivate. And that doesn't mean that you stand there pointing a finger in somebody's face and, and being you know, loud and strident about what they're doing is wrong and, and being self-righteous and so on and so forth. Because I, I'll tell you, there are very few of us that come from a place in our life to where we have lived our whole lives as animal advocates. At one time, we all ate at a fast food restaurant, or um, we may have been a farmer or something. So we have to remember that you know everybody is on a different point of that learning curve and that we just need to kind of be there for them to kind of be a resource and support for them as time goes by to help them on their journey to compassion. Because I think that's what everybody wants. I mean, nobody ever says, I don't want to be compassionate. I want to be cruel to animals. I want to be cruel to people. I mean, there are a small minority of people that are that way, but they're called psychopaths, you know. I think that most people view themselves as being kind and compassionate people. And it's just, you know, helping them expand that sense and the meaning of what compassion is. Many of our listeners who are already in the movement might know you from Peaceable Kingdom. Uh, you were one, you're on the cover of the DVD and one of the uh, main people that's documented in the movie. There's uh, several farmers who have been turned to vegetarianism. Um, could you just, for those who haven't heard the story, could you briefly give us an overview of how you became vegan? Well, I started out on this journey. I was working in the dairy industry, and I got injured. And uh, I found out from some blood work that was done, I had some health issues. And, and I was going down the same road as my, my father. So, And he had already had like two quadruple bypasses and a stroke. So I didn't want to go down that road. So I uh, started to get some education from this doctor, and one thing led to another, and I became a vegetarian without knowing it. Uh, He gave me some medical pamphlets, and when I read those pamphlets, I said, well, I can't eat this, I've got to limit this. And uh, my wife and I looked at it and said, well, can we do this? And she, she says, yeah, let's do it together. So we did. 
but we had become vegetarians and believe it or not at that point in my life I didn't know what that word was I never heard the word vegetarian but when my family you know we have get together and I said well I, I'm not eating that and it's strictly for health reasons they couldn't support me on that they were like they became very angry long story short I ran away from home um, my brother took over the farm and I ran away and I moved to Cleveland Ohio and that's where I hooked up with some people I learned what vegetarianism was and what being a vegan was. Well, I was a vegetarian for one year, and then I became a vegan. When I started getting this information, it was like a no-brainer. Being a vegan is what I had to do for my health. I did that, and then it wasn't until a few years later I adopted a cow here at Farm Sanctuary. And it was after hearing Gene Boston, one of the co-founders of Farm Sanctuary, give a talk at a veg club in Canton, Ohio. And I um, adopted a cow on the spot. I came, I got my adoption papers, I came up and visited, and it was, it was like my third visit. It was during a hoedown that I went in and I had kind of bonded and made this connection with Guernsey steer called uh, Snickers. And I went in and I saw Snickers and I said, he was half, you know, on the other side of the barn and I just he called his name and he ran over to me and uh, he just put his forehead right in my chest and leaned against me. And I just gave him a big hug, and I had realized there on the spot I had this epiphany that that is what I had turned off all my life, that I developed these coping mechanisms from childhood on to care and then not to care. Light bulbs, one after another, just started going off in my head. I finally broke through the emotional armor that I had built up from childhood. When you grow up as a farm kid, you grow up being indoctrinated by your family, by your community, by your church, um, by 4-H, by FFA, and these different things as you go on this journey to being a farmer, of what your relationship is to farm animals and what their role is in our lives and, and in our culture at large. I got to a point where I emotionally knew that that was wrong, but I had to question some very basic assumptions that I had in my life, and it was difficult. It was difficult for me, it was difficult for my family, but it made all the difference in my life because now my activism was from my heart, not just from my head. And I truly believe, from my own experience, I truly believe that to be really effective advocates, we need to make that one-on-one -on -one connection with a farm animal, to know them as the individual, as a subject of a life, and not just stories that we've read in books or, you know, articles, animal rights articles, or uh, whatever. We need to make that one-on-one -on -one connection. I mean, I know you've had these experiences, too, when you've done your photography and you've gotten to know these animals and see their, you know, their individual emotional lives that they have. And it's amazing. So it's, it's just something that I had grown up denying. I would see it, but then I wouldn't allow myself to think about it. Humans are really good at that because we can do that not only with animals, we can do it with each other. And uh, that's how we're able to go to war and kill each other. That's how we're able to do the, you know, the horrible things we do to animals. Um, if we want to have a more peaceful world, if we want to be more peaceful people, if we can't do something as simple as treat animals kindly, how do we ever expect to treat other humans kindly? Because with humans, we're dealing with, you know, the different psychologies and temperaments and, and all the emotional things, baggage that goes on with being human. But animals, 
don't have that. They live in harmony with nature. They don't ask anything from us. They don't talk back to us. You know, they don't have those verbal skills. Sometimes I wish they did, but they don't have those verbal skills to, you know, tell us off or anything like that. But yet we can't find it within ourselves to treat them better. And that is such a simple thing to do, but it's not something that we, it isn't a task we take up. And I don't think, it's like Gandhi said, you know, the moral progress of a nation is judged by the treatment of its animals. That's, there's a lot of depth to that saying. And we, I don't think we will treat each other better until we learn how to treat animals better. A lot of people think that, you know, start with treating humans better and then the animals come next. You know, they're always like, well, why are you trying to save these animals when there's so much human suffering? But there's, there's such a connection between how we treat animals and how we treat people. It's, it's a lot deeper than it looks on the surface. Um, so last question, you, you said you went vegetarian for health reasons. Has your health improved? Oh, dramatically. I mean, all of the markers that were in my blood work have disappeared. And as Caldwell Esselstyn would put it, my, my blood work now, I'm heart attack proof. My, all, the, all the markers like my homocysteines, my cholesterol, my um, liver enzymes, everything is, you know, is uh, at a point now that we're, I'm, you know, in excellent health. And I feel great. And people say, you know, they, they, kind of, they mention to me that it must be that good vegan living because I don't look as old as I am. Because they say, yeah, if you leave, live, uh, you know, a good vegan lifestyle that, you know, it takes 10 years off from you. And that's what people say about me and even my family remarks about they say you don't seem to be getting any older i don't know i mean that's kind of an anecdotal thing but i sure don't feel 10 years older and i'm sure i'm sure not in the condition my brother is he's younger than i am and he's on borderline type 2 diabetic he's on blood pressure medication he's on statins for his cholesterol you know he's he's 40 45 pounds overweight he's going down the same path as the rest of my family because my whole family has died from predominantly heart disease but cancer and, you know, there's some strong evidence to relate, you know, like in T. Colin Campbell's book, The China Study, there's some very strong evidence that too much animal protein in your diet is what causes these things. And I'm kind of living proof of that in my family because I've turned the tide and I've turned the clock backwards and my blood work is fine now and I don't have the physical problems that the rest of my family has. I hope they'll all uh, learn from your example eventually and join you in your good health uh, it's been really great getting to interview you you're a great uh, asset to the movement and a great human being thank you very much well thanks i really appreciate it all right and that was farmer brown from peaceable kingdom and farm sanctuary you are listening to vegan radio on www.veganradio.com Next up, we have some personal friends of ours, local activists from Northampton, Massachusetts. Ruthie and Alex from Pedal People. They're a human-powered trash and recycling service. Yep. When I say activist, we're talking about bicycle activists this time. They're vegetarian-ish. <laughs> <laughs> We've got one vegetarian and one freegan. We're here with Ruthie and Alex from Pedal People. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. So, Ruthie and Alex, um, could you tell us about this Pedal People business? Sure. Well, we take people's recycling and trash from their houses to the transfer center, and then it gets sent on to the dump by truck, but we take it on bicycle. We also we have a six-foot bicycle trailer. That Actually, we, we have three of them. Three six-feet bicycle. Wow. That's 18 bicycle trailer feet. Do you ever connect them all together? We have but mainly just for fun and giving rides. 
Yeah, you can connect them all together, and they each have a 300-pound weight limit. So if you connect them all together and you max out the weight limit on each trailer, plus you add the weight of your bicycles, you can be moving over a 1,000 pounds. Um, so we do it all in Northampton and Florence. Well, sometimes if we're delivering things. See, we deliver furniture and stuff, too, but we'll deliver that. To, we've gone to East Hampton and Hadley and, and stuff. But mostly we're doing trash and recycling in Northampton. And we started this business three years ago. We started it out of passion and a love for, for bicycles and using human-powered transportation. Um, that was our idea. It wasn't that we started out thinking, oh, I want to haul garbage or I want to haul recycling. Come on, everybody <laughs> wants to haul garbage and recycling. <laughs> um, I mean, I really enjoy it, but the, my passion is I want to ride my bike. I want to be able to make a living riding my bicycle. just happened to be that in Northampton, um, peop- there's no curbside pickup. pickup. You either have to bring it yourself or pay someone. In our case, we're competing with trucking companies, making it so that trucks don't have to make stops and don't have to go down streets. How does your business connect to keeping things local? I think about fuel. For me, a lot of my fuel comes from local farms and gardens. I work at the food bank farm sometimes and I eat a lot of food from there or we have some community garden plots. We're actually starting our pedal people is starting a little CSA farm off of Montview Street here That's in Northampton. Exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, there will be um is it a factory <laughs> farm? Uh, <laughs> well, only if the people who work on it will be hogs in the factory. No. <laughs> um, but it will be a human-powered farm, in, except for a few deliveries of compost or leaves. We won't use rototillers. There won't be any petroleum used on the farm. Instead, um, we'll be doing no-till farming involving um, laying down, mul- like mulching heavily, and then planting into that. In terms of keeping things local, um, thinking about fuel and where my fuel comes from, I try and use a lot of local fuel as compared to the trucks, which who knows where their gas or their diesel or whatever comes from, but it's probably outside of Northampton. So by local fuel, you're talking about the food that you eat to pedal your bike with. Exactly. And you guys... Well, Alex is vegetarian, and Ruthie is a freegan. Uh, Tell us what freegan <laughs> means, Ruthie. I, I know our listeners want to know what freegan <laughs> is compared to vegan. Uh, well, freegan, I like to also say I'm an opportunivore. Um, but freegan, for me, it means that I don't buy animal products. I don't buy them, but if I find them, if they're going to be thrown away anyway, if the animal's already died, if I'm not contributing to the industry, then I'll eat it or use it if I feel like it. Mm-hmm. So does that include flesh, or you're just talking about like dairy and eggs and stuff like that? Um, for me, I, I don't eat meat very much, but occasionally I do. Sometimes I think that it can be good for my body. I think different body types work differently. But usually I don't really like it. So mostly I eat vegan just because that's my preference, but, but I'm not that picky. You know, if there's some... I don't know, some dairy or some pieces of meat or some chicken broth. Fresh roadkill. Yeah, fresh roadkill, whatever. (laughs) Oh, you know, I'll eat that if I feel like it. Speaking of roadkill, pedal people, not just pedal people, but riding a bicycle for transportation. If you're trying to live a vegan lifestyle, I think it's very 
it's important. It's very connected because all the roadkill that cars are responsible for, I mean, that's a lot of animal death. It's true. I've actually seen some statistics about the number of animals killed on the roadways every year. Which 400 million? That's what I've heard. Don't, really? Don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I do know it's, only, it's second. The meat industry is first as far as killing animals, and roadkill is, is number two. Really? I did not know that. And I'd like to report I've never killed an animal on my bike that I know of. <laughs> I bet you run over some uh, bugs every night. Yeah, <laughs> probably do. Bug murderer. Sometimes I'm riding with my mouth open and they fly on in. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. carnivorous. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex, you're a vegetarian. How long Indeed. have you been vegetarian? 17 years. Yep. Were your parents vegetarian? No, actually, I converted them. I became vegetarian first and then... Most of my family became vegetarian. Do you feel that, like there's any connection between your your business, your job, Pedal People, and being vegetarian? Can you find any connection between that? I guess only in the sense of trying to be nonviolent in biking as opposed to driving. Driving just seems so much more violent to me, and there would be a similar parallel. Tell us about the difference between um, the garbage you pick up at um Houses where meat is consumed versus the houses where uh, they're vegetarian. Well, we have something we call the maggot index. <laughs> and let's just say it's a little higher at uh, <laughs> when there's any meat involved. It's true. At your house, Megan, I've never seen any maggots in the. Wow! <laughs> Did you hear that, listeners? <laughs> Maggot-free. Maggot-free at the Shackleford home. <laughs> Um, I don't. We don't keep exact statistics. Right. However, you must um, have some kind of. Yeah. When you know, when we can see through the bag and Ugh. notice. You, uh, you don't even have to see through because the maggots they be crawling all around, oh, upside down, upside inside out. That's true. The whole bag crawling oh. in the hot days of summer. Um, just transporting trash in general and seeing all the waste of American society mm, is mm-hmm. kind of disheartening it's really also really nice to be outside and be meeting people and we know the truck is not moving that in that case that there's less air pollution because of us and it's good exercise do you have a favorite pedal people story who's the craziest person you've met out on a pedal people run (laughs) (laughs) i have a friend who rides a bike around town he often has the homemade trailer that he made himself it's quite does he have American flags propped off, and does he have curly, long, curly brown hair? Yes, and he always. I gives, like him. Yeah, he's very friendly. He always he's gives very me friendly. A, he always gives me a hug and a kiss whenever I see him. I have to. I, I'm, I'm fine with that, but I have to be very clear with him that one kiss is enough for a <laughs> I I can tell a story. Do you have a story for me? No, not no. for you. Though, sorry. Um, so one day, a couple of winters ago. We got a call to haul a couch over to Hadley. It had snowed, and they're supposed to plow the bike path bridge. If you want to get across the Connecticut River into Hadley, there's only these two bridges, the Coolidge or the bike path bridge. It's a very big river. I had loaded up the couch on the Northampton side, and I, was, I started to bike out of Northampton, and I stopped at a stop sign, and there was this guy walking his bike down the sidewalk and balanced on the back of his bike he had this big tv (laughs) (laughs) and i was like hey you you need help carrying that and he said yeah yeah 
where are you going? And I said, I'm taking this couch over to Hadley. And he said, oh, great, that's where I'm going. And, <laughs> he, and he put the TV on the couch. And so he was going to transport his TV on the back of his bike to Hadley. Yeah, he had actually taken his seat out of his seat post and had the TV <laughs> balanced on his wow. bike frame and tied on with all these strings. Dedicated. I figured I would take the bike path bridge because I thought it would be plowed like it's supposed to be. But no, it had like four inches of snow on it and ice under that. So I started trying to ride that couch across on the bike trailer, and I just got <laughs> stuck in the snow. I had to get off and, like, walk it. And then by that time, the guy, he was, like, pushing the couch from behind, and I was oh pushing it from the front. And we had to stop, like, every 100 yards for a break because it was so exhausting. And uh. you stayed on the trail. Well, we, I mean, we were halfway on it. We couldn't get off, and uh. we couldn't go back. He stopped for a cigarette smoke break halfway across and, and then there was this other guy walking and then he said to hell with it all I'm smoking a cigarette too <laughs> then there's this other guy that passed and, us walking across the bridge and he had bridge. a dresser <laughs> and I said put it on <laughs> now this other guy walking across the bridge he looks and he says why don't you just get a truck they're only $20 <laughs> I was just like hey this is free besides I don't have $20 for a truck besides it's not about using trucks it's about human power and being nonviolent and you know it takes time it takes time we just plot along till we get it done did you tell him that and he had a conversion moment <laughs> he joined you and, helped and then you. he started pushing <laughs> <laughs> no it was just a quick by the encounter time they got to Hadley there was 45 people pushing <laughs> it was a critical mass <laughs> but anyway so I eventually we eventually made it over the river but it was ve- a very exhausting time that's quite a story yeah I want to write a song about that one. who's the toughest out of the two of you who could uh, kick whose ass <laughs> Wait, there's lots of other pedal people, too. There's six of us. I know, but you guys are a couple, so... Uh, yeah, let's talk about... We want to know um, if you guys wrestle, who ends up on top. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to uh, disregard those last remarks um, oh, no, that, Derek, that, that Derek Goodwin said. <laughs> um, my question, I wanted to talk a little bit with Ruthie and Alex about um, just starting a business, and you started just... It was one person. started out... Was it just you, Alex, or it started out with both of you? Um, both of us started it. We had both wanted to start a business using bicycles in the past, but had figured that we really couldn't do it ourselves, that we needed someone else to just like bounce ideas off of and mm-hmm. help out with. Yeah, because I had been living in Chicago, and I moved out here in 2002. And then after I moved out here, a few months later was when we started Pedal People Together. It's just such a success story because now how many customers do you have? 130, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and you started this business three years ago, yeah. perhaps. And I just, I, what I love about it is that you guys do it for the same amount or cheaper than the city does. So it's like people can't lose, you know, if they have you guys doing their recycling and trash, they're still paying the same amount, but there's less pollution. That says something really powerful about the economics of like how we, using bicycles and human power, we can economically compete because we don't have all that overhead. We don't have all the gas. We don't have all the expensive machinery and repairs. Right. It's like yeah. willing to use your body. So on the yeah. Pedal People website, you guys also have a um, co-op you're running. You're kind of branching out, right? You, you have a food co-op. What's that all about? Yeah, we decided to start a, a buy, buying club together because we wanted to have more control over what food that we got and um, wanted to buy it in bulk. 
and wanted to have to figure out a way to get food delivered to people by bicycle. If we could buy it in larger quantities, then we could um, you know, deliver it by bike instead of someone having to drive to the store. Mm-hmm. And, you're st- and still more people can join at this point? Yeah. So they could, how would they do that? Go to www.pedalpeople.com? Yeah. Cool. And, and you also have another project to something to do with landscaping? Yeah, we started a yard care uh, division <laughs> <laughs> this this year. And um, so we're doing mowing using push mowers, um, real mowers, and um, scything of taller grass, uh, cool. also raking of leaves, all using human power. Um, we transport the tools by bicycle and a bike and bike trailer. And we're also shoveling snow. You're listening to Vegan Radio on WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, Northampton. Well, I've been kind of thinking, when you buy organic beans these mm-hmm. days, they're often coming from China. Mm. And that seems like a ridiculous distance. And right. potentially, you know, poor labor practices um, to get your your organic beans and so one of the things i want to try to do is grow beans locally and then i've just been thinking about whether it's better to have a chicken in my backyard for eggs rather than having all this food shipped from so far away Mm -hmm. i mean just think about how many animals are killed in the transport of that Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's true. It's, it, yeah, there's some great areas. You want things to be organic and you want it to be good for the earth. But if you're going hundreds of miles away in order to bring that back just so that it's organic and it's not local, is that necessarily a better thing? Probably not. When we eat something, there's death involved any which way we look at it, whether it's you know insects, small you know worms, whatever, or bigger animals, roadkill from the shipping whatever, there's always going to be some death involved. And I think that we should just, like if we have a chicken in our backyard, whether we use it for eggs or kill it and eat it, whatever, if we're more closely connected with it, we're more likely, it's good to take responsibility for causing that death and recognize it. Whereas if we buy processed vegan food, things like vegan mac and cheese in a box. Or uh, I could I could agree with you about using the egg. I don't, I don't think... Uh <laughs> it's necessary to kill the chicken. Uh, you know, if you're getting, if you're getting, they they lay lay an egg a day or something. So I get the point. Okay, and I'm I'm with you. You know, I know that raising vegetables, there's bugs killed. My philosophy is to you know cause as little suffering as possible as well. Yeah, that's my point too. It's just that a lot of suffering we don't see because we're too disconnected from it. The suffering's gonna happen, and as long as it's gonna happen. I think it makes some sense to be more intimately connected. I agree with, I think some, you know, if we're going to say, let's talk about it from the vegan perspective, you know, some vegans would be like, no, absolutely not. You just should not have a chicken. You should not eat the egg. I don't feel that way. I feel like I could understand that if you were, if you were going to have the chicken there and the chicken was going to have a nice life, then I think that it might make more sense to do that. You don't want to cause suffering that you don't have to. So if you can eat the eggs, you know, and have that nutritionally, then I, I wouldn't see any reason of 
like having to kill the chicken. But I understand your point. I understand your your point is well taken. Something that vegans can fall into is that like, oh, I'm vegan, and so you know, I'm I'm not causing any suffering. And it's like I think Ruthie's point is that you have to look more closely to be more aware of that, and so to like look at the argument more closely and and think that like, well, maybe I won't get this thing that's organic. Maybe I'll get this thing that's local because that actually is less suffering in the whole you know scheme of things don't agree necessarily with say the killing of animals to do that you never know what's dying when you eat anything even though it's vegan you don't know what animal has died to get it to your plate right but if you're if you have a chicken in your yard and you kill it that's something that you directly caused you know you killed the chicken whereas if you buy a carrot at the store and the truck that delivered it killed an animal that didn't have the intention to kill the animal whereas with the chicken you have that intention i don't know that <laughs> intention the lack of bad intention i don't know that, that makes things okay i i don't say it makes things okay but i would say that having a good intention isn't an excuse for ignorance but as long as you educate yourself as much as you can and make the most compassionate decisions that's the most any of us could do yeah this is, goes into that, like, eating local and just trying to eat unprocessed things because uh, sometimes... Except for tofu. you got to have tofu. No, see, I think tofu is <laughs> way too tofu. processed. Way too processed. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're jonesing for some tofu. <laughs> I like to think about how alive is my food. I'm talking about vegetables here. Don't get upset. <laughs> how close to being alive. Like, when I think about how healthy something is for me, I think... Does this, when was this killed? This grain, this legume? What about that uh, dirty block of cheese you pull out of the dumpster? (laughs) Oh, you know, I guess the mold is pretty alive. (laughs) That's a gray area. (laughs) Very gray. More ways than one. I'd say blue, gray, green. Really? All right, you guys. Well, you're you're over your time limit, so we're kicking you out now. <laughs> <laughs> we're obviously going to come to blows soon. So. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think it's great that we can hear at Vegan Radio express different opinions yeah. ab- about vegetarian issues, animal rights issues. You know, Even there's no we're right. We'll listen. There's to other more. People. There's more opinions. There's more opinions than just ours. And That's right. Good, good to hear them. Because if you say the same thing all the time, people are going to quit listening to you because they know what you're going to say. <laughs> As long as we don't have to arm wrestle Ruthie, we'll, have we'll a be okay. Of winning. <laughs> Thank you, you guys, very much. You're welcome. And yeah, uh, that, the us. website again is uh, pedalpeople.com. You can find that on Vegan Radio show notes at veganradio.com. You're listening to Vegan Radio, www.veganradio.com. Go vegan! All right, and that wraps up another Vegan Radio show. Thanks for joining us here at www.veganradio.com. Thanks for listening to our interviews with Harold Brown and Pedal People. And we'll be back on December 21st with a holiday special. Ooh, I hope it's special. holiday <laughs> cheer, chestnuts on an open fire, mistletoe. Vegan silk nag. I'm Can't gonna, go wrong. I'm going to hang some mistletoe over Megan, and we're going to do some smooching. I'm going to hang some mistletoe <laughs> off Derek's nose. <laughs> Don't you worry about that, listeners. And, and we will see you in two weeks. All right, and you're listening to... Vegan Radio! Vegan Radio! Vegan Radio! Vegan Radio! Vegan Radio! Vegan Radio! Oh, oh, oh. Is that good? I think so.